I've titled the sermon Redeeming Ruth, which if you read it, is, uh, you, you must recognize it's a bit of a play on words. Let me read, wait for this plane to go by. It's a bit of a play on words because on the one hand, of all of the people in Scripture, Ruth is one of the ones who seems to need the least redeeming. She's virtuous throughout the story in the first two chapters. We saw that she is a Moabite, a foreigner, who marries one of the sons of Elimelech and Naomi. Elimelech and the two sons that they have die, and Ruth is left with her mother-in-law and her sister, uh, her sister-in-law, Orpah, and Ruth gives up everything, sacrifices everything to go back and support Naomi, who's left without any, any real clear way of providing for herself or her family. Ruth is a sacrificial giver of all scripture, the, the archetype. On the other hand, redeeming Ruth is a little bit ironic because the story of Ruth and Boaz isn't about just redeeming Ruth, it's about redeeming creation. And the, the story is recorded in the Bible not just because it's a beautiful love story, but because from Ruth and Boaz comes a child named Obed and his grandson is named David. And of course, Jesus comes from the lineage of David, from the house of David, as the true king, a better king than even King David. And we are looking at this right now because both David and Jesus, as well as Obed, are born in the city of Bethlehem. A little town of Bethlehem, never great even in the kingdom of Israel, even being the birthplace of David remains a small, humble town throughout its history. But as we read from Mary's Magnificat earlier, consistently God chooses to use the humble to bring his salvation, to do mighty things, to even humble those who are proud and well off. Ruth in chapter 2, the setting is in Bethlehem. It's the time of the harvest. The barley harvest comes first and then the wheat harvest. And Ruth goes to glean from the fields to take a little bit off the edge where the people were instructed to leave some. And she catches the eye of, of Boaz, the owner of this particular field. But we said that she catches the eye of Boaz not because of her physical beauty, at least that's not recorded in the scripture, but because of the beauty of her character, that she has been the one who has provided for Naomi, given up everything so that she can come and, and provide for Naomi. And he provides for them out of his own harvest of the crop, above and beyond what was required by the law. And it seems like the story may have stalled a bit because the harvest continues, the barley and then the wheat, and still nothing has happened. People are expecting some type of report, it seems like, in the Scripture, especially knowing the story. 
and yet it stalled out. Chapter 3 begins, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you? Now, I'm going to pause during the reading of this and explain part of it as I've been doing before. And I want to pause just right there and remind you back in chapter 1 when Naomi was talking to her daughters-in-law. She said, "I I want you to go back to your Moabite homes your parents and find husbands so that you can find rest in your homes. Now anyone who is married or has children or either of those two knows that having a family is not necessarily restful. And part of the language that we read in Ruth is is cultural. And I'm not going to try to explain all the cultural nuances of this story. To do so takes away from the story. Some of the time we need to do that, but to do so takes away from the story. But it's just enough to know that there's an element of a, a person finding a spouse and being able to, quote unquote, settle down that's still applicable and understandable for us. And particularly in the time where a woman's livelihood oftentimes depended not just on finding a husband, on finding children who will care for, uh, care for her in her old age, as Naomi did. So Naomi is talking to her daughter Ruth, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that, you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz... Our relative, with whose young women you were. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make for yourself, or do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down. Observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. It was a risky move. It was a bold move that Naomi suggested to Ruth. Even by today's standards, we read that story and you say, is that really in the Bible? I'd say if you were reading this in Hebrew, you might even be more shocked at the reading because some of the words that are used in this story are euphemisms for other things. As I said before, things seem to have stalled out a bit. Probably most people took notice that Boaz had been so kind to Ruth. I think Naomi and Ruth may have expected that Boaz might make a proposal of marriage. Naomi seems to take matters into her own hand. We're going to press this thing forward a little bit. And you have to ask the question... 
Is it justified? Singer Rich Mullins back from the 80s and the 90s. Wonderful singer. I'm not a huge contemporary Christian kind of music person, but in the time he was he was a breath of fresh air. He was he was a different kind of voice. He bucked a lot of the trends in it. Wasn't always right on with his words, but in one song he was singing about Rachel and Leah and Jacob. You know that story where uh, Jacob falls in love with Rachel. And then Rachel's father, Laban, tricks Jacob, makes him work for him seven years, and then gives him his other daughter, Leah, and then makes him work another seven years. And Rich Mullins is singing this song. He says, Jacob loved Rachel, and she loved him, and and Leah was just there for dramatic effect, he says. And then he says, later in the song, he's singing about something. He says, it's right there in the Bible, so it must not be a sin, but it sure does seem like an awfully dirty trick and the line has always stuck with me it's not exactly a right line because a lot of things that are right there in the bible are stories of people doing things that aren't to be emulated they're not things that we should we should look at and say hey that's what we should do case in point a lot of people come to the story of ruth and try to find some type of model for christian dating or or courtship. You ever heard that? Is this a model? But if you read through the Bible and ways people meet and come together and get married, and uh, the way, there are as many or more ways that people meet and come together and date in the Bible as there are in Simon and Garfunkel's songs, Ways to Leave Your Lover. Just a little chuckle there. I can appreciate that. The point being is that that when we come to stories like this in the scriptures, we don't need to necessarily look at it and say, well, is that right or wrong? Is that the way we should do it, the only way? But when we come to this story in particular, there's no reason why we should come to it and say that Ruth and Naomi were up to no good. One of the arguments that has been presented for this is that they were, they were too aggressive as women. It was the, the man who needed to pursue the woman. But nowhere in the scripture does it suggest that a woman can't express some interest or even should, shouldn't express some interest in a, a, a potential husband. In fact, you need those types of signals for a marriage to, to work and to be good. And, and, uh, and we see that here in, in its case in point. Boaz may have had good reasons for waiting to express that interest. Once Ruth comes and does this, Boaz takes no time in saying, yeah, I'm definitely interested. As we read through the next part of it, think about this, that Ruth has come back having lost her husband, may even still be in a time of mourning, and may not have even signaled to anybody that she's ready to consider being married again. She might have even been communicating to Naomi, I want to care for you right now. I'm not interested in marrying myself. Naomi's news that this is a near relative might have been a revelation to Ruth at this point that she didn't even know even though she had been out gleaning and working alongside of the female and the male workers in Boaz's field. 
Is not Boaz our relative? He says, she says in verse two. The relative would have been significant, and that's where we're going to read next, because he's a relative in the sense that he's also a kinsman redeemer. And the kinsman redeemer of the time was the person who was responsible to make sure that the people of the family were taken care of. Also, the people would get, those kinsmen redeemer were responsible for the physical land that was to provide for the family. That was why they were harvesting barley and wheat in the place of Boaz's, this was Boaz's field. Verse 6 says, So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drank, drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Ruth gets ready and she goes and observes the place where he's lying but doesn't make herself known yet. The whole scene is set at the threshing floor, which is a completely foreign concept to almost all of us. Anyone here been to a threshing floor before? I haven't. It says that she went down to the threshing floor which probably indicates that she was staying in the city of Bethlehem, the city being the place where there were protective walls, and typically it was built up a little bit geographically. And the threshing floor was out away from the city, near the, the harvest fields. Oftentimes it was set up a little bit as well on some type of rocky uh, enclave, because it was the rocks that the people used to crush the grain, and once the grain was crushed, ground, the chaff from the grain would blow away by the breeze that was, was coming. A lot of times people did this in the evening because the winds were pretty steady and calm. And so it was a part of the harvest where it was busy. People would sleep out at the threshing floor so that they could get an early start on the day the next day with their harvest and the threshing. The time where 
the harvest was plentiful, the food was plentiful, and so it was a time of celebration as well, and so they would eat and drink together there. Some people suggest that she was waiting until Boaz was drunk, but there's nothing to indicate that Boaz was prone to drunkenness. He was drinking wine and is at a place of being uh, happy having drunk the wine. And then Ruth, once he goes to bed, approaches and doesn't make herself known at all. Quietly. Lays down at his feet and uncovers his feet. It must have been warm enough that his feet didn't get cold right away, even for a while, because it's not till the middle of the night, around midnight, that Boaz wakes up and finds this young woman asleep at his feet. Some of your translations translate what she was wearing in different ways. Some of it presents a beautiful clothing because God, in other parts of Scripture, uses language like this to refer to beautiful clothing. But remember who Ruth is. She's, she's poor. She really only has one main outfit. And the word that's used to describe that here is the outside cloak. It doubles as a blanket. So she's probably wearing this, using this, 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 uh, this thing, this outer garment as a blanket. Completely covered. The text really doesn't suggest much of anything sexual in this at all. But rather, Boaz wakes up and he finds a young woman sitting there. Now, when Boaz wakes up and finds a young woman sitting there, or laying there asleep, he would have understood and probably presumed something else. Because one of the things that was common in the time was that the prostitutes, knowing that the people had money and the harvest there, would go to the threshing floor and present themselves to people for that purpose. And so for Naomi to suggest that Ruth take this course was even more bold than what it might sound at first glance. Boaz asked the poignant question, Who are you? Being dark? Not being able to recognize him at all, her at all? Being dark and not being able to see her at all. No reason to think there are any lights on. This is a darkness like you have when you go camping in the middle of nowhere and there are no lights and no moon shining. And she says, I am Ruth, a name that he recognizes. She effectively proposes to him. She says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are Redeemer. The phrase, spread your wings, there's even a footnote there. For the wings can mean also the corners of the garment. Spread your garment over your servant. Spread your wings over your servant. There's no mistaking that this is a proposal of marriage and of him recognizing his kinsman-redeemer responsibilities. That he would take her and Naomi under his care and provision. 
and in so doing that he would take her for a wife. That's right there in the Bible. It must not be a sin. We want to be careful with that. But in this case, there's nothing that suggests that Ruth went out of bounds in suggesting that he ask her to marry him. Or that she she's asking him to marry her. Last time I preached this, years ago, I gave this example. I'll give it again. When Mandy and I, can I do this stuff? Can I share the story? When Mandy and I were, uh, is that a yes? When Mandy and I were, um, were dating, we were on again, off again a number of times. Won't share all the reasons for that, but we went on a, a ski trip together with a group from the church. We were all eating together in one house. And I thought that things were basically over and I wasn't uh, going to pursue anymore. Maybe a little bit like Boaz with Ruth. No signals that she was ready to marry. But our friends had it in mind that we were going to marry each other. And so they put us on dinner duty together to cook the dinner together. And as I handed her one bowl, I think there was either pasta or salad in it. She very intentionally, rather than just taking the bowl, took the bowl by putting one hand on my hand. It was a simple gesture, but it couldn't have been clear in communicating to me her intent. Men and women, it is good for men to pursue a woman for marriage. But nowhere in the Bible does it suggest that a woman has no say in the matter, can't express interest in others, can't take initiative, shouldn't take initiative. And Ruth is presented in this story as an example for us to see the boldness of not just her, but Naomi and Ruth in communicating something clearly to Boaz. Boaz is presented in this story, we'll see in the next chapter, as the the redeemer, the hero of the story, even in some ways surpassing Ruth's goodness in providing for everybody. But but it's not it's not one or the other. It's both Ruth and Boaz providing by God's power and provision, salvation that comes through their descendant, Obed, David, and eventually Jesus. The application in Ruth here is for a strength, a female strength that is a different kind of strength than what even a generation before accepted in many churches. It doesn't reduce the call to men being men and women being men, women. It doesn't confuse genders or gender roles. It promotes a strength, a strength in men and a strength in women. And it's worth noting something else here, that if you compare this story to, say, the story of Esther, the story of Esther is a Jewish woman who is brought into the courts of a foreign king and she eventually marries the king and turns the king's heart. In the story of Esther, we see a very different example of a man and a woman in, in doing their thing. Their... In the story of Esther, we see a very different example Esther follows the instruction 
of another relative. Maybe you can change a king's heart by cooking him supper. Esther marries a foreign king, not in disobedience to God, but in Esther we see a king who is practicing a form of manipulation, a power play that is completely absent in the story of Ruth. Boaz exercises no power play at all, no form of manipulation. Boaz is an example to husbands, to future husbands, on how men are to relate to women. He shows, rather, his admiration, his generosity. He knows that he has the responsibility, and he even knows he potentially has the power as the Redeemer to do these things, but he doesn't. And in that we find a husband who is even more attractive. An example for husbands around all of Christendom around the world and for those outside the church as well. Let's continue reading 14. So she lay at his feet until the morning. Again, an example that there's nothing sexual going on here. It's worth just making a side note that a lot of people in the church use this passage as justification for various things, even sleeping together before marriage. And the, uh, the Christian sexual ethic is held up in this story. That sex is to be within marriage. It's, it is made for marriage. And there, there's no reason to, to suspect anything else. But arose before one could recognize another. So still dark. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it. And he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. The place we need to stop at this point in the story is to understand how Jesus fulfills the role of the kinsman redeemer. The responsibility of a redeemer, the role of land, is no more. The nation of Israel, the physical land, is no longer the place where the, the promise comes. God tells us in Scripture, in Galatians, that the church is now the Israel of God. The responsibility that we have to look after one another is demonstrated in places like the book of Acts, where it says that the believers had everything in common and no one had a need. We find that fairly soon some uh, of the Greek believers have a need, the Greek widows. There's always this struggle to provide for one another, and the call to us as a church is still to recognize that as brothers and sisters in Christ, we 
are called to a radical generosity to make sure that those in the household of God are provided for well first. That generation, generosity doesn't stop. It continues outside of the church. And, uh, um, and, and our generosity to those outside the church is part of the attractiveness that brings others in. Boaz demonstrates this generosity to Ruth in the example because Ruth is a Moabite, is a Moabite, a foreigner who has come to serve the God of Israel, but tangibly she experiences the love of God through Boaz's real action in in showing her both generosity and giving her uh, barley at first and then also Uh, taking her as a wife and bringing her into the family. But of course, the church is only able to do so much, and the church's call is always to point others to Jesus as our true Redeemer, our true kinsman Redeemer. Jesus calls himself our brother. God reveals himself and allows us to call him our Father. He does this in new ways when the New Testament is revealed and we're brought into the household of God. Those who are far off have been brought near, made righteous. And of course, Jesus calls himself the Redeemer. The one who has paid the price Not of our destitution, of our famine, but has paid the price to buy us out of a state of sin and out of even a state of death. The wages of sin are death, Paul says in Romans. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The purchasing that Jesus does is not like buying a slave. The purchasing that Jesus does is the buying out of slavery so that we can experience more than just a freedom. The buying out of slavery so that we can experience more than just a freedom we experience a family. And what are the commitments of family? Commitments of family go deeper. Deeper than just a convenient relationship with somebody else who thinks like you do, who makes you feel good, brings you happiness. The commitments of family family transcend differences. Case in point, differences in politics in recent seasons. If you are experiencing difficulty in a relationship in your family because of the strain of the last political season, this reality of Jesus being your Redeemer and calling you His family gives you new energy and new ways to enter back into those relationships with love. It doesn't say you have to agree on everything. In fact, love that only loves when it's in agreement is not true love at all. 
It says that we're called to love, especially when it's difficult. A knowledge of Jesus being our kinsman redeemer it gives us a renewed energy and a renewed motive that we would enter into relationships with those outside of our family and outside of the family of God. Those that it is difficult to be in relationship with, with the hope of somebody seeing the gospel at work in our lives and asking, why do you do this? Many people love those who love them. It's unique to the Christian faith for us to love even our enemies. That victory is found over our enemies through that love. And that the goal the goal of us as Christians isn't to defeat our enemy in battle or even in politics. The goal of the Christian is to defeat the enemy with love that brings them over to a side that they enter into that love and can show that love to others. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's the message of the gospel. It's the message of Bethlehem. Jesus came to love those who were unlovable, went to the lepers, went to those who were the outcasts, went to those prostitutes that went to the threshing floor, went to the tax collectors who were hated among the people, went to all kinds of people because they were the ones who were most ready to hear the gospel. Who, who are we going to during the Christmas season? Who are you going to? I don't want you to leave today just with a vague idea. I want you to take just a second right now and think about who those people are, the outcasts, the people who need to hear the hope of the gospel that begins with the love that is shown through your actions to them. As this plane comes, take these 10 seconds to put some names in your mind. You can even write them down or take a note on your phone, whatever it is. It'll be a bit of an awkward silence for some of us. Now here's the thing. I hope everybody's got at least one name in mind. And some of you have prayed for these people before. Some of you have tried to reach out to these people before and found them unresponsive. The first commitment is that we would begin with prayer for these people. Naomi and Elimelech and their two sons went off because there was a famine in the land. They went to Moab because there was a famine in the land. 
They had no physical ability to fix this problem. But they lived in the city that was called the house of bread, and they knew the one who could provide the bread. And we have to ask the question, did they go to God to ask for an answer to their problem? Because when we seek to love our enemies, those who are not responsive to us, those who hate something about us, it will be impossible. Like the famine, it will be impossible to see their hearts turn toward God unless God himself is the one who turns them. Unless we go to God in particular prayer, not once, but persistently over and over for these people. So commit yourself to praying for these people on a regular basis, and not just for their salvation, but for their overall flourishing, their, their, their experience of life in a fullness. God may choose to bring some type of suffering on their life, but that's not ours to choose. We're called to pray for them, to show love to them, because we have been loved first by Christ. The planes are signaling that that's a good place to stop. Actually, it's time. That was all I had. Let's pray. Father, we are in the midst of this Advent Christmas season, and we know that there are many needs around us. Coronavirus has crushed people's livelihoods. Many are living in fear. Father, there are so many needs around us. Will you give us eyes of compassion to see those who are hurting? Hearts that are filled with a love for others that seek to know and share them. There's something burning over here. Father, we thank you that you have provided for us by giving Jesus as the bread of life. And we ask that you would help us to understand the story of Ruth and see its beauty unfold in our own lives. Thank you, Jesus, that you are our Redeemer. And we pray all of this in your name. Amen.